parable of the talents in Matthew uh, 25. And um, if you want to turn in your Bibles or tap there to Matthew 24, 25, I'm going to start in 24 and just highlight a few things there. And now when I'm thinking about it, maybe we should have taken up the offering at the end after the parable of the talents. (laughs) I'm letting you off easy today, okay? You can do your offering now and then you'll get the lesson. But we might turn that around some other Sunday. Maybe we'll turn that around, just see what happens. Um, So the context, and, and we've been talking about context in terms of parables because Jesus is telling these parables in the first century uh, to Middle Eastern people in an agricultural society for the most part. And we are far removed from that culture uh, in North America in uh, 2018. And so there's a little bit of context that needs to be applied that I'll apply it as we go along. But also there's the context of where Jesus is telling the parables, or even more specifically, where the writers of the Gospels are choosing to order Jesus' telling of the parables. Because as you go through the the different uh, Gospels, you realize that Jesus preached lots of sermons and he told lots of parables. He told the same parables more than once. And so we have some parables recorded uh, even slightly differently depending on the audience he was speaking to and how he told them. So this parable is also in Luke and it's a little bit different. There's ten, ten talents and ten servants and things like that. So, But we're looking at the Matthew one. But the context in which Matthew tells us this parable and the context in which Jesus is teaching it is important. And so if you back up to Matthew 25, sorry, 24, basically what's happening is that uh, Jesus is talking about what is going to happen in the end times. When, when he comes again, what is going to happen? And, this par- and the parables that then follow become parables about waiting. And there's lots of different kinds of waiting. Um, for instance, Isaac, we couldn't tell... My son Isaac, we couldn't tell him when Christmas was coming until like literally two days before. Because if we told Isaac that Christmas was coming like a month before, then he would absolutely lose his mind for a month, right? It was so far away, how can I ever get to Christmas? Luckily, he didn't really know what date it was, and so we could tell him, oh yeah, Christmas is like in two days, no problem, right? But if he found out early, that was painful for him to wait for a whole month. Now, conversely, if you are a mother or a father and you've got three kids that you have to shop for and you've got, you know, three banquets that you have, Christmas dinners you've got to do and you're part of the pageant and, you know, and you're looking at the calendar and you're saying, Christmas is only a month away. How am I going to get all of this done? There's not nearly enough time. So the waiting is completely different, right? And then you have the waiting of, say, a sunset over Boshkong or Percy Lake, and you're sitting there on the shore, and the sun is setting, and you're waiting, and you're thinking, you just want this moment to drag out forever. And then there is the waiting, other kinds of waiting, the waiting through another chemo treatment or waiting for the nausea to pass, and you're thinking, how quickly can this get done because I want this over with, right? The same time frame, Different kinds of waiting. And so Jesus now is telling parables about how we wait. And so the flow of thought leading into our passage gives us different examples of how do we wait. Firstly, wait for Jesus as people who don't want to be surprised by his coming. So in 24, after explaining the time that is near, that his coming is is happening, he says in 24, 36 to 44, that nobody knows the hour except the Father. And that it was like this at the time of the flood. 
People were eating and drinking and marrying and having babies and working and going on with their life and, and things were just carrying on as normal. Jesus' argument here in this text is not that the sign of the end times is going to be wickedness and violence and wars and all those things. In fact, he says before the flood came, people were just carrying on their normal lives. For a lot of people, the end time is going to come right in the middle of your workday, right in the middle of the wedding, right in the middle of the birthday party. You're just going to be eating and drinking and going to work, and it comes as a surprise. So Jesus says, don't be surprised. And then in the following verses, he says, two men are working in a field, and one gets taken right out of work. And then in another one, two women are working, and one gets taken and another left. So our encounter with Jesus can come upon any of us. And so the first message here is Jesus says, wait for Jesus as people who don't want to be surprised by his coming. Therefore, keep watch, he says in verse 42, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. And we don't know when the Lord will come for us. It could come at any day. And then he goes on in verses 43 and 44. He says, understand this. If the owner of the house had known what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch. He would not have let his house be broken into, and so you must also be ready. If you know a thief is coming to your house at a particular time in the night, you are prepared for it, right? And so there's another thing that Jesus says, wait prepared for the one who is coming, that you're ready that it happens. Of course, if, if you were going to have a thief come and it was by appointment, you would be ready for him to show up and you'd have the police and you know maybe some friends who know karate or something there with you, right? And that's, so the, the point of that parable is not that Jesus is like a thief and has the morals of a thief, but the point is, not to press it too far, is that he shows up unexpected the way a thief does. Then he says, wait as stewards who give an account for their services, verses 45 to 51. He illustrates this with two servants, a good servant who cares for the kingdom of the master and a wicked servant who wastes the master's property. And you sort of notice as we go along here that each illustration kind of picks up on the idea of the parable before and carries it forward. And we don't know when Jesus is going to come. He's going to come quickly, so we've got to be prepared that way, but we also have to give an account. And so they sort of build on each other. So we're to wait as stewards who give an account for their services. Then he goes on and he talks about waiting as those who know the master may be long delayed. And this is the parable of the five wise and the five foolish virgins or bridesmaids. So again, in first century, the wedding is largely driven by the groom. It's the groom who prepares the wedding, who prepares the house, who prepares the feast. And he prepares all of this lavish party and this lavish experience for his beautiful bride who he then comes and takes from her father's house and brings across town to his house and the big party that's there. And everybody waits for the groom to get all these things prepared. And I know this sounds totally foreign to you because the groom has largely disappeared from modern weddings, right? So this is completely upside down. So I know this is blowing some of your minds, right? This is not about the bride. The bride doesn't even really get mentioned in this parable because it's not about her. It's about the groom. He's the guy who's getting all of this ready and doing all the work. It's totally different than our culture today. But the point here is with the five wise bridesmaids and the five foolish bridesmaids is that you don't know when the groom is going to come. And so they have their oil lamps full and they are ready even if he comes at one in the morning or two in the morning, whatever, they're ready when he comes. And the foolish bridesmaids are unprepared. They don't have oil. They, their lamp runs out. Then they're like, oh, we got to go get oil. And every, all the stores are closed. And so they end up showing up late and the door to the party is already closed, right? And so the, the parable here that Jesus says is, wait as those who know the master may be long delayed. 
It could be a long way off. Do not look around and say, oh, nothing's ready yet. Nothing's going to happen. It, it could be a long way off, but then when he comes, he comes suddenly. So wait and be ready. All of these parables are talking about how do we wait as servants of the master? How do we wait as the bride who is expecting the groom to arrive? And so then we come to the parable of the talents. And we now have some context of the picture Jesus is painting of his return and how his people, his disciples, are meant to live in anticipation of that return. He's going to come quickly, but it could be long delayed. You should be good stewards, you should not be foolish, and you should be ready for when he comes. And if there was a one-sentence summary for the message of this parable, this parable that I can actually spend some time on, the message of the talents might be this. Wait as servants who are expected to improve the master's estate. Wait as servants, or even slaves is the actual word there, who are expected to improve the master's estate. So this waiting that Jesus wants to get across to his disciples goes beyond simply being ready or simply performing one's duty or simply being prepared for a long delay. The waiting goes beyond all of that to being trusted to act on our master's behalf for the increase of his kingdom or his estate while he's away. So we're not just waiting around passively like the bridesmaids. We're not just waiting around sort of trying not to be surprised or expectantly like a thief in the night. We are actually actively to be waiting in a way that prepares his kingdom and increases his kingdom and his estate. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to read it all the way through. I'm just going to read it and kind of unpack it as we go. And it's Matthew 25, 14 to 30. And it'll be up there and you'll see the points as we go along. How do we wait as Christians? And Jesus says, Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one, he gave five talents of money. Okay, so context right away. A talent is a unit of money. It's of silver or gold. It's like a weight, it's like a bar. It's literally like a bar of gold, if you can imagine that, or a bar of silver. Now, if it's a talent of silver, a talent of silver is 6,000 denarii. When have we last heard of a denarius? Last parable, right? How much did they work in the field for one day for? One denarius. A talent of silver is 6,000 denarii. Okay? That is basically 25 years working wages. First servant got five of them. Okay? So we are talking about somewhere in the neighborhood of them being worth, let's call it, if you have a $40,000 a year job, then 25 years is a million dollars. That's easy math. So one talent is a million dollars. First servant gets five million dollars from his master. It's a lot of money. That's if it's a silver talent. It doesn't say. If it's a gold talent, wow, right? 50 million, whatever the number is. I don't know. It's crazy. But it's a lot of money. Then he goes on. To another, two, uh, to another servant, two talents, and to another, one talent, each according to his ability. So there's three servants, they get five million, two million, and a million. And so the master of the estate has assessed the capabilities of his servants, and then he's invested a lot of money into each one of them, okay? This is what the listeners of Jesus are hearing. Okay, these three slaves just got a lot of responsibility, right? He trusts them, the master trusts them with significant responsibility. 
None of them, even the servant given one talent, has been given a small job or a menial job. None of these servants have been shortchanged. Okay? The least of them got a million dollars. Most of the people listening would be thinking, a talent? Like a whole talent. I will work my whole life and never see a talent. And this slave just gets given one by the master. They are entrusted with an opportunity that's far above their station in life. And this is their chance to show what they can do now given the right resources. How are they going to perform? And Jesus goes on. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. Again, a little bit of context. Putting your money to work in the first century did not mean investing in the stock market, okay? So this is not a picture of the guy who says, oh, I got $5 million, I'll just give it to my broker and sip pina coladas while the master's away, right? You can't put your money to work that way in the first century. There's no stock market. Putting your money to work here, the people would have understood, is that he is buying businesses or he's buying property, and then he's buying the seed, and he's hiring the workers, and he's making contracts, and he's overseeing the estates. And so he's investing his money into businesses and fields and, and planting and workers, and he has to oversee all of this. So it's work. It's active work for him to put this $5 million into play and to have it benefit and to have it profit. It took work in order to have your money make money. And any of you who have this gift of God to have money make money, know that it's not as easy as it sounds. It takes work to have your money make money, to invest it in your own business or another business and make it succeed. But if you are wise and you're careful and you're diligent, then you could do all this as this servant did, and he doubled the master's investment. Verse 17, So also the one with the two talents gained two more. But the man who had received one talent went off, he dug a hole in the ground, and he hid his master's money. Okay, so the servant with two talents worked with what he was trusted with, which was two talents, right? And he was equally successful. His opportunity was smaller, he was given less responsibility, you could say, but he took what he was given faithfully, and he produced exactly the same result as the first servant. He had something good to show for his attention to the business of the master and the master's estate while he was away. He could show that he was invested in the kingdom and in the estate of the master, and that he produced for him fruitfully. But then the last servant just took his talent and buried it. It's still a million dollars, right? It's still a big responsibility. It's still something to work with, you know? I mean, it can be difficult starting out, but if your dad gave you a small loan of, say, $10 million, then you could make it work, right? No, no, I'm just, I'm just kidding you. No, no, no one would consider it difficult to start out with just a million dollars, right? Like nobody would say, oh, you know, I only had a million. What could I do with it, right? Jesus' listeners, so imagine this. There's all these people in the Middle East... You know, in, in Palestine, in, in around Jerusalem, they're all in that county, that area where Jesus is teaching, and they're, a lot of them are farmers, a lot of them are poor people, fishermen, whatever, and they're listening to Jesus tell this story, and they're thinking, this guy's got a million dollars, and he just goes and buries it. What an opportunity. All I have is a fishing boat, and I'm doing something with that. He's got a million dollars, and he's not doing anything. Okay, so the listeners, how this falls on Jesus' listeners' ears is that, this guy's had an amazing opportunity, and he's just burying it in the ground. So they're, they're tracking with Jesus, right? They're understanding what he's saying here. This doesn't make any sense, what this servant is doing. And then verse 19, it says, After a long time, what we expect has happened with all of these parables that Jesus is telling, all these stories, same thing. 
After a long time, you see how it picks up on the parable before that said it might be a long time before he comes, the, the, the bridesmaids. So after a long time, the parable, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, and I have gained five more. And his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. Okay, so again, faithful with a few things? It's five million dollars. So the listeners of Jesus are thinking, this master just said that $5 million was just a few things in his estate and in his kingdom. And if this guy was faithful with just $5 million, I'm going to put you in charge of many things. Well, if that's few things, then what's many things going to be, right? They're just amazed at this, the, the wealth of this master, the size of his potential estate. Many things is going to be amazing, What this master must be offering is far beyond what they can comprehend. And the slave is offered increased responsibility to do more. And even better, he's offered a share in his master's happiness. Now, slaves are not supposed to share in the happiness of the master, right? The work of the slave is the joy of the master. But the master here says, you as a slave, you as a servant, you are actually going to benefit and participate in my joy, the wealth or the happiness or the joy that I get out of the increase of my estate, you are going to participate in. You're not just going to get your denarii a day. You're not just going to get a fair wage. You're actually going to enjoy and participate in a share of my happiness. This is amazing news to the people who are listening. And outside of the confines of this parable, that means for us, we are going to share in the joy of Jesus himself. We are going to share in the joy that Jesus has with the Father and the joy shared with all the results of our kingdom work here on earth. And all of this has echoes of John 17 in it. When we start to think about how we, as the servants of Christ, if we are servants of Christ, and we are faithful in the little that we are given... When the master comes or when we go to see him, the answer will be, well done and join me in my joy. Share in my joy, the joy of Christ Jesus. And it has echoes of John 17 in it, that the followers of Jesus, even in this world, share in the joy and the glory and the love of Jesus. John 17, 33 Jesus is praying for his disciples and he says, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Wow. You imagine that? That's Jesus saying, I want my disciples to have my joy fulfilled in them. The joy that is in store for us here and there is the joy of Jesus. That's pretty amazing in like seven words. Like we could just spend a week on that. But then in 1722, he goes on and he's praying to the father and he says, the glory you have given me, I have given to them. Jesus' joy and Jesus' glory. The disciples, the servants of the Master, receive and partake in the share, in the joy of Jesus and the glory of Jesus. The same glory Jesus has from the Father, we receive from Jesus. Or 17.23, he goes on, I love them even in the way you, Father God, loved me. 
So we are loved and receive the love of Jesus, the same kind of love that God has, the Father, for the Son, is the love that we receive. Okay, so this is the parable that Jesus is telling. We, as disciples of Christ, receive and join in a share in the Master's happiness. We share in His love, we share in His glory, we share in His joy. And when you realize your Master is Jesus, that's a pretty amazing reward. That is a share of something that we want. It's incredible. So then in verse 22, it goes on. The man with two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, and I've gained two more. And his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. And so the man entrusted with less is still responsible for that smaller amount and has accomplished proportionally the same result. And perhaps here you hear sort of the echo of last week's parable of the workers in the field, those that come early and late. And the late workers were equally rewarded even though they were given less to do that day. Even though they had less responsibility, they had an equal share in the reward from the master. But, and I didn't dwell on this last week, here's the kicker here that comes through a little more clearly in this parable. They were still expected to do the work set before them. And so when you're reading this parable and you think, well, I'm the guy with two talents or even one talent or like half a talent. Like, I don't know who all these, you know, hotshot Christians are who have all this stuff and they should definitely be out using their gifts and all the resources that God has given them for the kingdom. But I hardly have anything. The parable here is, yeah, God does give people different opportunity. God does reward people with different gifts. He does have things happen differently in their lives. You might have five talents. You might have two. You might have one. You might have a half. You might have a quarter. You might have one denarii. Whatever it is, the parable here says, whatever God has given you, you're responsible for to work for his kingdom. And so you can't listen to this parable and say, yeah, but I don't have any talent. I don't have anything that I could double up for God. And so I'm, I'm excused from this discussion. No, no, Jesus says there's all kinds of people. There's, there's servants that have five talents. There's servants that have two. And there's servants that have one. There's a whole range of servants in God's kingdom. But there's always an expectation that they will use what they are given for the furtherance of the kingdom. God has given responsibility, and the pun actually works in English. He's given talents to persons according to their ability and according to their personality and according to their circumstances. And those talents that the Master intends for us are to be used to multiply His estate and to increase the kingdom. So just because we might feel ourselves to be the poorer worker that we feel that we are the ones that are picked last in the day, or that we feel that we are the one that received only the two or the one talent with little to offer. The parable here, God's word to you, is whatever the master has entrusted you with, he is returning, and we are waiting for his return as servants who are expected to increase the master's estate. Whatever opportunity and ability and spiritual gifts, of course, that you can imagine, you should be bringing to gain a reward that's even greater than you can imagine. And then the last man comes. Verse 24, Then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And so I was afraid, and I went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. Okay, so this is interesting in, in terms of the parable, right? Knowing what we know, because we've heard this many times, we've been in Sunday school, that this is the accusation that the person would make against the master, that he was a hard man. 
And we need to address that. You're a hard man. You gathered where you didn't sow. You take where you don't place. And we have this grumbling from a laborer again. We've heard laborers grumble before, right? We've heard servants grumble against the master before. And the perception of this servant is that the master benefits unjustly from others or he demands too much. Now, Jesus doesn't say this is true of the master. Jesus says this is what the servant says. This is how the servant perceives the master. And so the servant says, you're a hard man. He says, so I was afraid of you. And so out of my fear of you, I did not take any risk and I did not use your talent for anything while you were away. I did not put anything to work so that at least I could give back to you what you gave me. All you're going to get out of me is the same thing you put in. That's what you get. So let's see if that logic holds up. He says it's because he was afraid because the master was such a hard man. But what does the master say? His master replied in verse 25, You wicked, lazy servant, so you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, if that's what you thought of me, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So apparently the master's not buying his logic, right? He's saying, if you really thought that about me, and again, he's not saying he is. He's just saying, if that's true, that that's who you perceived me as, as a master, then it doesn't make sense that you would just bury it and not return anything. If you were actually afraid that I demanded things from you, then you would have at least put it in the bank so I could at least get my 10% interest or my 5% or my 3%. Wow, 10%. What am I, in the 80s? Um, (laughs) Right? He's saying at least I could get an interest rate, a return on my money. I mean, banks existed at the time. There was no stock market, but there were banks, right? If you feared my judgment, that would have been even more motivation to at least try. I trusted you with 25 years' wages. I took from my wealth and gave it to you. You could have at least put it in the bank. And we have to keep resetting our 21st century minds to become first century listeners. And what they were hearing was that a slave who was given 25 years' wages was unwilling to use that to further his master's estate. I don't think Jesus' listeners are buying it either. This slave is not worried about risk because Jesus takes risk off the table in the story by mentioning the bank. Jesus says there was no risk here, right? If you think it was about risk and him being afraid of risking, hey, there's banks, remember? So Jesus takes the risk idea off the table. So he's not fearful because of risk or fearful because of the master because he had a risk-free method of providing a return. If you dig a little deeper, what we see here is that the servant resented the master. Listen between his words. You're hard. You take what isn't yours. You demand what others have. And so I give back to you nothing more than what you had. I spent all that time that you were away serving myself, not serving you. I built my kingdom. I didn't build yours. It's resentment and selfishness in the heart of the worker that got one talent. Because he could have easily done something for the master. But his perception of the master, his perception of God, was that God was demanding and that he took what wasn't his. And so he decided, I'm not going to give you anything. It's resentment and selfishness that lies at the heart of that final servant. And so Jesus' listeners would have been angry at that slave. The master is clearly generous and the servant is clearly wicked to waste his time and his resources all that time that he was away and accomplished nothing. 
If they had servants, they would want servants like the first two, not like this last one. If we had servants, we would want servants like the first two, not the last one. And so if we are servants, we should want to be servants like the first two, not the last one. And so the master says, you wicked and lazy servant. Take that talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. And the audience at this point is nodding along with Jesus, right? This is just. This is actually the right action of the master. Outside of the parable, the spiritual lesson here is, if you have the new life that God has given you, if you have the Holy Spirit and a renewed mind and faith and spiritual gifts, and you have the body of Christ, the church, and all the promises and the blessings of God, you recognize as followers of Christ, you recognize them as being from the Master. When you're a servant of Christ, as your Master, you know that He's given you everything that you have. And if you have those things in Christ then they grow and they bear fruit and they multiply in this life. They reproduce for the kingdom of God and you will have more, more responsibility from God, a share in God's joy, a share in God's happiness, a share in the glory of Christ, a share in the love that God has for Christ. You will have all of that as you use what God has given you to see the furtherance of his estate and his kingdom. But if on the other hand, all you have is resentment towards God, and you are sitting here with a charge against God that he is exploitive and you are angry that he asks something of your life in return for what he has given, if you're upset that he's going to hold you accountable for your life while, he has, while he's waited to return in order for you to accomplish much for him, then even the most basic things that you have been granted in this life will be taken away in the end when he returns. There's two kinds of servants here. You either recognize the generosity of the master and you are filled with joy to serve in his kingdom and share in his happiness and use every talent that he has given you to that end or you are the resentful servant who has a charge against God that he's exploitive and he should not hold you accountable. And if you're the latter, you understand how this ends. For everyone who has will be given more And he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has, will be taken from him and throw that worthless servant outside into darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Remember why Jesus tells parables. Because he yanks the rug out from underneath us at the end. It's a warning of the dangerous predicament that we can find ourselves in. And it is a testimony to the generosity and the grace of the Master and of God. Almost all of Jesus' parables are the same. They're saying, God is generous, and you're in a dangerous position if you don't understand who God is. This last servant didn't understand. We are all accountable to the master when he returns. We're all waiting for that return. And so this parable, like the others, is answering the question, how should we wait Should we wait like the last servant who was bitter towards God and spent his life, that is the time that he had that the master was not there? Should he spend his life spending time on himself, serving himself, squandering his life to build his own kingdom, which is going to end? Or will we spend our time waiting for the master using the rich, rich blessing that he has bestowed on each of us? And I don't just mean here spiritual gifts. As this parable is commonly interpreted that that God has given us spiritual gifts and we should use those gifts for his kingdom. That's true. 
It's true, we have been given spiritual gifts, but we have been given everything by God. And we are to use everything that He has given us in whatever a portion that He has given it for the furtherance of His kingdom. Our task as Christians while we wait is to proactively improve the Master's estate, not our own estate. The foolish virgins failed for thinking that their waiting was too easy, and so they did nothing. And the wicked slave failed thinking that his task was too hard, and so he also did nothing. But the responsibility was the same for the foolish bridesmaids as well as for the lazy servant. One thought the task was too easy, one thought the task was too hard, and they both assumed that they could just do nothing. And they were both wrong. Both parables tell the same story. The responsibility remains to be prepared and to be proactive in bearing fruit for the kingdom with what God has given us. Now, you have been, may have think that you've been given five talents. Some of you may realize God has blessed me abundantly, not just with money, but with situation in life, with education, with friends in high places and all kinds of things. And God may have blessed you with five talents and you can use all of those talents, not just one of them, not just two of them, not just three of them, use all five talents for God. Or maybe you feel like you're kind of middle class in the spiritual kingdom and he's just given you two talents to work with. You know, you've got a little bit here, a little bit there, but yeah, I can make this work. I can do something. You know, I can can work in the kingdom with what I've got. Maybe you feel like God's just given you one talent and you're feeling like that other servant, like you've been shortchanged somehow, just a million bucks. What can I do with that? Right? But God says you can use it. He will reward you equally with what you've been apportioned. You've been given a personality. You've been given friends. You've been given a network of relationships. You've been given houses. You've been given money. You've been given jobs. You've been given health. Maybe you've been given illness. Maybe you've been given friends in low places. Right? You have compassion or energy for a certain kind of people or a certain kind of work could be a position in life, could be a place where you live. We are all God's servants and God has given us everything that we have. And he's waiting to return. And when he's returned, we're expected to use our master's things for the furtherance of his kingdom. If you've made a profession of faith, you've chosen to be a servant of Jesus. But if you show no inclination to work in his kingdom, but rather build up your own kingdom, then what kind of servant are you really? So the question that falls at the end of this parable is what have you done with what God has given you while you wait? It may seem like he's a long way off, but he will come like a thief in the night. You may think you've got lots of time to go buy that oil and get ready. You know, I'll be ready when he comes, but he may come when you don't know it. You may think I've got lots of time to live my life how I want and I'll just, you know, fix it up right at the end. Jesus says we don't wait like that. What have you done with your spiritual gifts? What have you done with your talent, your resources, the people you know, the relationships you have, the place that God has put you in and work, the blessings that he's given your life? Do you think that God has not given you enough? Is God not generous and free to give what he wants to who he wants? Has God not given everyone according to their need and according to what he's apportioned them to work in his kingdom? God only asks of each servant what is given to each. He doesn't ask more than what was given to them. He didn't ask more of the last servant than the talent. He didn't ask him for five talents. He just asked him to do something. He didn't even ask for a whole talent at the end. He just asked for interest on the talent. God's not demanding. He's not a hard man who reaps where he doesn't sow and who gathers where he did not put. God wants fruitfulness for us so that we can share in increased responsibility and share in the joy of his reward. 
Matthew 6, 19 to 21, there's echoes of this too. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. So the question of this parable is, have you chosen the right treasure? Have you chosen the right kingdom to build? And where are you storing it? What have you done with the gospel? What have you done with God's church? What have you done with the people that he's put in your life? What have you done with what God has given you? Are you building up his kingdom so that at the end you will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with these few things. I will put you in charge of many things. If the things we have in this life are few things, just imagine the many things that we are going to have. And he says, come and share in your master's happiness. That's the reward to share in the joy of Christ. So just as we go to communion, we're going to reflect on this. We're given many things in this life and a certain time to use them in. When God calls you as his servant to serve him, he puts his gifts into your life, and we are to start looking for ways to increase his kingdom. Jesus' followers joyfully recognize their roles, and they delight in them. Their conduct is different. Their priorities are different. Consider the other two servants, the first two, how they acted while the master was away. Just imagine all those years, perhaps, that the master was away. Just imagine how those other two servants were acting all of that time. And then compare that to how the last servant was acting. How are we acting while the master is away? How is he going to find us when we return? Followers of Christ understand our role while the master is away, and we are delighted in that role. And we are thrilled and joyful at his return because there's a certain amount of pride to be able to say, I know what you gave me and I did something with it. And the reward is there to delight in his happiness and to have a share in it. So the lesson, how do we wait from this parable? We wait not passively but actively as servants who are trusted to improve the master's kingdom. How are you improving the kingdom of God with what he's given you? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for these parables that teach us how to wait. I pray that each of us would take assessment of our lives and take assessment of what you've granted us. And it may be much, and praise God. And it may be little, and I get it, that it may seem comparatively to other servants that we have not very much. But Lord, everything we have is from you. And you have not given us anything by accident, whether it's health or illness, whether it's friends in high places or low places, whether it's a lot of money or a little bit of money. Whatever you have entrusted to us is not by accident. But you expect us to be accountable for what we've been given. And Lord, I pray that that would be true of each one of us as we go forth from this day today. In Christ's name, amen.